That you've given us breath in our lungs, that you've given us a people to worship beside, that you've given us this grace of starting our week among your people with your word open, singing praises to you. We pray that that would give us strength, that it would give us courage, wisdom, and joy. And as we set our sights ahead just a few weeks towards remembering the birth of Jesus and all that has changed since then, we pray that you would bless your people this morning with joy in you, with hope, with love, and that our eyes will be fixed on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Well, as Justin mentioned a moment ago, This morning, uh, our plan is to spend some time thinking together about the task that Jesus has given to his people between the times of his ascension and his return. We're going to be talking about the Great Commission. Now, often when we begin to think about this, maybe as you've heard sermons about this, there's a couple passages that people tend to uh, go to nearly every time. One of them is Matthew 28. And in Matthew 28, Jesus has been raised from the dead and he gathers his disciples together shortly before he ascends. And he tells them that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And because of that, he says, you then should go and make disciples of all nations, not some nations, not a few nations, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus promises to be with them to the end of the age. That's one place that we tend to go to a lot. The other one is Acts 1. And in Acts 1, it's the same setting. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus gathers his disciples together, and he is about to ascend into heaven. And the disciples ask a question. Jesus, they say, when will you restore the kingdom of Israel? When will you set things right? And Jesus tells them that these things aren't for them to know, that the Father has set them by his own accord. But Jesus tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all the way to the ends of the earth. Now, one of the things that I think can happen when we focus just on these two passages is they happen at about the same time. So Jesus has been raised back to life. Jesus is about to ascend. And if we're not careful, it can feel like Jesus offers kind of an afterthought. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you guys, before I ascend into heaven, you've got some work to do before I come back. Go to the ends of the earth. But what I want us to see this morning is that the call to go to the ends of the earth isn't an afterthought that Jesus happens to remember just before he ascends and loses his chance to tell them this. This is a thread that is woven all through the pages of the Bible. And so Jesus isn't tacking on something at the end, but Jesus is pulling on a cord that is all the way back in Genesis and works its way all the way up through Jesus's resurrection, ascension, and reaches on until his return to the very end of your Bible. So the plan this morning um, is to lift up high and see uh, a big landscape before us in hopes that seeing how this is woven through your Bible would spur us as a church 
onto caring deeply about this glorious gospel, this good news of forgiveness and a future going to the ends of the earth. So, um, with all of that said, go ahead and grab a Bible, and I'm going to give you a hard book to find to begin with. We're going to go to the very beginning, Genesis. Now, we're going to start in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, if you're familiar with Genesis, you'll know this is where uh, we meet a man named Abram, who we know better as Abraham, but his name hasn't been changed yet. And so in Genesis 12, he's still Abram. Now, before we read this, I want to refresh our minds on a little bit of the backstory here. So if you remember, on the very first pages of your Bible, on page 1, Genesis chapter 1, God does something marvelous. He creates. This, by the way, is one of the beautiful things. We live in a place that otherwise shouldn't be. But instead of nothing, God has created something. And the picture in Genesis 1 is God as as king. He stands up and he gives commands and creation obeys. God says, let there be light, and there was. God says, let there be a separation between the waters above and the waters below, and, and there was. And one of the things that God does in Genesis 1, the kind of crowning achievement, is he creates humans in his image, male and female, he creates them, and he gives them a task. They are to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. They're to spread to the ends of the earth, and they are to act like representatives of God. They're God's image bearer, and they are supposed to rule over, have dominion of the earth. That's that's Genesis 1. Genesis 2 gives us a slightly different angle. So in Genesis 2, instead of God standing up high and giving commands, in Genesis 2 we see God almost kind of down on his knees as a gardener. He's planting trees. He's forming Adam out of the dust of the ground. He's putting Adam to sleep and and taking from his side and fashioning woman. We see God in Genesis 2 on his hands and knees like a gardener, and he gives Adam and Eve a task. The task in Genesis 2 is to work and keep the garden. In other words, imitate God. Both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 see God creating humans with the intention of them being a blessing, an imitation of God. And the only thing that they must do is to trust. Trust that God is good and trust that God is for them. Well, you know the story. That is not what happens. In Genesis 3, instead of trusting, they don't trust. The serpent comes up and says, did God really say? And they begin to scratch their heads and go, maybe he didn't. And the serpent asks, don't you just think God doesn't want you to be like him? A kind of curious accusation since God made them in his image. But these seeds of doubt sink deep, and Adam and Eve don't trust God, and instead of trusting God, they rebel. And this sets all things careening into chaos. As you read through Genesis 3, you see that instead of blessings, we get curses. Curses to the serpent, curses to the woman, to childbirth, to Adam, and if you read closely, you'll notice even the earth itself gets cursed. 
humanity was set up, here's a, an image to maybe kind of tuck away for us as we move forward, um, like a water truck. So imagine with me. You know sometimes on the side of the highway, they plant, after they've built a new highway, they plant all the fresh grass seed along the side, and these trucks drive by, and they spray water out across these seeds. And the goal is, this is going to be a blessing that's coming over the seeds. It's going to allow them to sink deep roots, to grow thick, strong grass, so that instead of ugly dirt, we've got pretty grass along the side of the road. Well, humanity, as a vehicle for blessing, has instead of trusting its designer, its creator, has decided, you know what? Maybe we don't want to drive on the road Maybe we want to drive in the ditch. And in refusing to trust our creator, humanity has found our water truck stuck in the ditch. And now, instead of that water bringing blessing and growth, the water is just spilling out the sides and bringing flooding and death. Well, the humans in the water truck recognize that they're in a rough situation, and so mashing on the gas pedal quickly, trying to free themselves from it, the wheels spin, the grass seeds scatter, more destruction comes, the water truck eventually tips over, is stuck in the ditch, and you can hear the two passengers inside of the water truck yelling at each other. The passenger says, I told you not to go in the ditch. And the driver says, you should have told me earlier. And now the two are angry at each other. What should have been blessing is now bringing cursing. There's flooding. The water that would have been good now brings hopelessness. And here is the sad reality of the humans that God has made in his image who represent him to the world. And the question in Genesis 3 that leads us into Genesis 12 is this. Will God tolerate his image bearers wallowing in the ditch, destroying the grass, destroying each other, and generally making an awful mess of everything. Well, God, let that happen. All the while, these image bearers reflect this onto their creator. Well, in Genesis 12, we get the answer to that. Genesis 12, we meet... Abram, who is an unlikely person for God to call, but that is just what he does. And so Genesis 12, starting in verse 1, we read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God tells Abram that it is through Abram's family that blessing is supposed to come to all the nations of the earth. The water truck that was intended to bring blessings has found itself stuck in the ditch. And so God sends a tow truck. This is what Abraham and his family are supposed to be. They are the truck that is going to carry on the blessing so that God's original project can actually get underway. Do you see the similarities? Let me just point this out so you don't think I'm just making up cute things. There's some interesting similarities between Genesis 12 and Genesis 1 and 2. Let me show you a few of them. In Genesis 1, God tells them to be fruitful and multiply. 
This, by the way, if you keep reading in Genesis 9, Noah happens, the flood happens, and God gives Noah the same command, be fruitful and multiply. So, so that's there. In Genesis 12, the new version of that is God tells Abram that I'm going to make you a great nation. Be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 1, humans are told to rule and have dominion as an image bearer of God. And in Genesis 2, they're told to work and keep the garden And here, we're told that blessings come through this family. Remember Adam? Adam is renowned for his lack of trust, of faith. And Abram, later known as Abraham, is renowned for what? He's faith. He's contrasted with Adam. And so where Adam and his people brought curses instead of blessings, Abraham's family is supposed to do the opposite. They are supposed to be the people that bring blessings to all the nations of the earth so that the water truck might get freed from the ditch, so that good news might go to the ends of the earth. This is what Abraham's family is tasked with. And this, friends, is a privilege. It's a privilege because Abraham didn't go looking for this or ask for this. This is a blessing that is given to him to extend to the ends of the earth. This is also a responsibility because it's not to stop with Abraham, but it's to go forward. And it's also a promise because God completes what God starts. Now, this all sounds well and good, but if you know your Bibles even just a little bit, you know there's a a problem that persists through all this. The problem's a deep problem because Israel, Abraham's family, is supposed to be a tow truck to free the stuck water truck from the ditch, but there's a, a problem with the tow truck. Where Adam and Eve didn't trust God, but instead assumed that God had ulterior motives, you remember what Israel does in the wilderness? They gather together and they say, hey, we think here's what happened. God saw us in slavery in Egypt, and he worked really hard. He sent plagues against the Egyptians. He parted the Red Sea. He raised up Moses, brought us across, sent us into the wilderness. And the reason they say that he did all of this was so that he then could kill us in the wilderness. Israel is doing its best impersonation of Adam. Where Adam and Eve mistrusted God's motives and intentions and instead chose rebellion Israel is now doing the exact same thing. Where the nations have said, "Ah, we don't think God is God, we're going to worship other gods. We're going to give ourselves to idolatry. And God says, none of that. This good news must go to the ends of the earth because people must be saved from their sin Israel finds themselves quickly doing the exact same thing as they give themselves to worshiping all kinds of gods that the nations worshipped. If you read the, the prophets, you'll notice that the prophets condemn the nations because the nations tend to abuse the downtrodden. They don't care for the orphan or for the widow or for the foreigner. Instead, they exalt themselves over these people so that they can make themselves mighty. And if you notice what the prophets do, they critique and condemn the nations and then pivot 
and offer the same critique and condemnation for Israel itself because Israel, the vehicle that was supposed to bring blessing to the ends of the earth, instead of living differently, instead of being holy, lives just like the nations. And and here lies the rub. God created a water truck to bring blessings. That water truck got stuck. And so God called a nation to be a tow truck. But this tow truck has thought, you know what sounds more fun? Let's go drive in the ditch. And the tow truck is now stuck in the same ditch as the water truck. And it's at this point that we can hear the Apostle Paul's words ring out. And I want to paraphrase it, but let me give you a chance to flip over there so you can decide if you like my paraphrase or not. Uh, Romans 3. By the way, next year we're going to be in the book of Romans, and so here's kind of a a little foretaste of, of that for you. Romans 3, Paul raises an interesting question. Now, I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit for our purposes, but the goal is to capture what's already there. Here's my paraphrase of what Paul asks. What is the advantage of the Jew? Much in every way. They were entrusted to be a tow truck to be different, to be set apart, to rescue the world. But what if that tow truck now finds itself in the same ditch? Does the tow truck's failure mean God has failed? Will blessings no longer go to the nations? Verse 4, by no means. If Israel has failed, does that mean that God has failed? That's the question that Paul asks. Paul says the answer is, of course not. Now, saying of course not and explaining how that's not the case is something we'll need the rest of Romans to unpack, and we don't have time to do that this morning. Um, So let me give you a quick cheat sheet for this. So Galatians chapter 3, Paul raises uh, some similar questions. And in verse 16, he makes an interesting observation about what was meant about the seed, the offspring that was supposed to come from Abraham. So we're in a strange and unexpected place where the vehicle that was supposed to set things right, that was supposed to fix everything, has now found itself stuck and in need of rescue itself. Paul would say the Jew and Gentile alike have found themselves in the ditch in need of God's blessing and rescue. And if that problem seems strange, the solution will be even stranger. And so in Galatians 3, I'll just read verse 16 for us. Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. So we're thinking here, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, 17. Paul says, these promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. 
So Paul's observation is what God tells uh, Abraham in Genesis 12, that, this, that you and your family are going to be a blessing to the nations, that that promise isn't actually about Isaac, Abraham's son. It's not actually about Jacob, Isaac's son's son. It's not actually about Jacob's 12 sons. Paul says the promise to your offspring is actually ultimately finding its fulfillment in Jesus. Now, this is important. And the reason this is important is because Abraham's a mess. It's important because Isaac is a mess. It's important because Jacob is a mess, and all of Israel from then on is a royal mess. And so if God is going to sort things out, if the good news and blessing are to go forth to the ends of the world, then something has to be a little different. And Paul says, the heir of this promise is actually Jesus. And so Jesus set to work in Israel the stuck tow truck. He gathers together this motley crew of disciples, and it's an interesting group. It's full of fishermen. You imagine they don't smell great. You imagine their social skills are maybe a little bit lacking. So he's got these people in this group. He also then uh, grabs some folks who really like the Roman Empire. We're thinking maybe Levi, who's a tax collector doing Rome's bidding in Israel. He then also gathers some people who really don't like Rome and who think the solution is to overthrow Rome, the zealots, and he gathers all these people together and he says, here's my group. It's an interesting tactic, but isn't this the way of our God? And so Jesus gathers these 12 together and Jesus begins moving up and down from Galilee through Samaria into Judea to Jerusalem. And as he's moving to and fro, he gives signs and wonders, displaying who he is, displaying what God is doing, displaying what is wrong with the people that are the descendants of Abraham. He teaches boldly. He performs signs. And he calls Israel to repent. But sadly... Israel has found itself stuck in the ditch for so long that it doesn't quite recognize the call of its maker. Jesus shows up. Jesus tells Israel who he is. He calls them to repent. And Israel doesn't listen. You know, when you've been in the mud long enough, it's easy to forget there's something better. Maybe you've experienced that. And so one fateful night, Israel handed her rescuer over to the nations to be put to death. This, by the way, is a strange way to go about fulfilling Genesis 12. Genesis 12 says that Abraham's family is supposed to be a blessing to the nations, And here, when Israel hands their Messiah over to the nations, in some sense, right, they're handing their blessing to the nations. Um, Not quite the way we thought this was going to go. One fateful night, though, Israel decides to fully reject her Messiah, to have him put to death, and hands him over to the nations. Jesus, though, as you know, isn't caught off guard. 
Jesus isn't taken aback. Jesus isn't confused as to what is going on. In fact, just a few hours before, Jesus has one last meal with his disciples. He gathers them together. And it's here that he explains just how it is that God was going to make good on his promises of old. He explains how sin would be forgiven. Of how the blessings that God promised back in Genesis 12 would actually get out to the nations. About how the stuck tow truck would be freed and the stuck water truck would be freed and the good promises that God had made for centuries and centuries and centuries would finally find their fulfillment. Jesus must die. But unlike every other death that we know of, Jesus tells his disciples that his death wouldn't be the end, but the beginning. This is something new. Now, the disciples, for their part, didn't quite understand what it was Jesus was saying. We see that over and over. They still find themselves confused when Jesus does get arrested. They find themselves frightened when Jesus goes on trial and they run away before Jesus is crucified. The disciples don't get what is going on, even though Jesus has told him. And so Jesus gathers his disciples together for this one final meal. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Normally, we take part in the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of every month at the end of the sermon, kind of working up towards it as a, kind of a climax and a, um, a response to everything that we've heard. This morning, we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper uh, kind of in the middle of the sermon. So we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper since we're here with Jesus and the disciples in the upper room. Um, and after the Lord's Supper, we will pick back up here and we'll try to tie a bow on all of this. Um, and so Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room getting ready for the Last Supper. So that's where we'll find ourselves. Uh, music team, if you all go ahead and come up here. Let me remind us of a few things as we get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper and think about its implications for us in this moment. When we take part in the Lord's Supper, we're doing a lot of remembering. You and I are remembering that we were in need of saving. That we were the Adams who instead of choosing to trust God, chose to not trust God. We, though we were blessed by God, refused to trust him, and we too have found ourselves stuck in the ditch. We, the unworthy lot that we are, Jesus came to save. We remember that we have no hope apart from Jesus, the descendant of Abraham. And as, as we take the bread, we remember Jesus' body broken for us. As we take the cup, we mournfully remember Jesus' blood poured out for us. And as we look around, and I encourage you to do that, look around. It is not you, an isolated individual that Jesus has brought to himself, but you belong to a people. We remember that it is a people that Jesus has saved. And so we're going to sing a song called, O Come All You Unfaithful, as a way of 
spurring us on, helping us to reflect on what we are about to do. Because it is, in fact, the unfaithful that Jesus saves because that's, that's all there is. So if, if you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian or if you're not sure if you're a Christian, let me encourage you to listen and to watch and to pray. I'm going to ask you not to actually take part, and, and here's why. You cannot remember what hasn't happened to you yet. In the Lord's Supper, we are remembering what Jesus has done for us. If you're not a Christian, that's not yet true of you. But here's the good news. The song that Mike and the team are going to sing over us is an invitation. It's an invitation to the unfaithful people like me and and like you. This whole business that we are doing this morning about the blessings going to the ends of the earth is because you are one who needs to receive the blessings. And so if you're not a Christian, please don't partake. But this isn't a walling up, a shutting out. This is an invitation for you to consider Jesus. And after the service, if you want to talk with someone next to you or myself, I promise you, no one in this room would rather talk to you about anything else than Jesus. You would find many people who would be happy to engage you on that. So church... Let me ask you, uh, we'll let the team sing over us. Let me encourage you to consider what it is we are doing with the Lord's Supper. Um, Remember Jesus' body and his blood. Prepare your hearts. Yeah. 
Christ is born for you. He died for you. He gave his body and his blood for you. I'm going to pray a prayer of preparation over us. If you want to go ahead and uh, take off that top layer and get the bread ready, you can. Let me pray for us. Father, we don't want to take lightly the fact that you've sent your Son to us. Prepare our hearts, we pray, with honesty and hope, may we take part. May you use this meal to strengthen us and to solidify our faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Let me invite you to go ahead and remove the foil. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus, we praise you for you humbled yourself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We praise you for we know that we have no hope apart from you, but that you have forgiven us, that you've freed us, that you've sent your very spirit to us. And so I pray that you would teach us to image you well. Amen.
Amen. Well, in the Lord's Supper, we are remembering things that have happened. We talked about that a moment ago, but we're also looking ahead. So Jesus says that he won't take part in this meal until he drinks it new in the kingdom of his Father. And so in the Lord's Supper, we are remembering and we are anticipating, which raises a question for us. What happens in the meantime? Jesus has died. Jesus has been raised. Forgiveness of sins has burst forth. And Jesus promises one day he will come again. And it is here in this spot where Jesus gives those famous words that call us to the missionary task. Jesus says, all authority has been given in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses all the way to the ends of the earth. And when Jesus says this, he's not tacking on an, oh, by the way. Jesus is pulling on the cord that has been running through the whole time that Jesus says, here it is. The blessing that was promised to come through the family of Abraham has arrived. Jesus says, you disciples now have a task. And so what became of this blessing? Oh, friends, it broke loose. You look in the the book of Acts and there's an Ethiopian eunuch who receives the good news, the forgiveness of sins, is baptized and takes the gospel back to Ethiopia. There's a slave girl in Philippi who's oppressed by demons, who's set free, who participates in the first church in Philippi. There's a slave named Onesimus who meets the apostle Paul. And this once slave named Onesimus now goes free, receives the gospel, is forgiven, and is an instrumental player in the early church. In the letter of 1 Corinthians, we read, Such were some of you of all this different kind, but now you are new because Jesus has showed up and done his work. The gospel burst forth from Jerusalem and Judea. It traveled out to Samaria. It traveled up to Macedonia. It went far east over to China. It went far west over to Rome. On and on and on it went. So the gospel goes forth. So the question I want us to consider as we wrap up our time together this morning is this. What is your role? What is my role? Where do we fit into this great story that our God is weaving together? I have three things for you, and we'll go through these quickly. One of them is something that I believe we should all be doing. The second one is something I think most of us should be doing. And the third one is something that a few of us should be deeply considering. So the first one is this. If this is all true, if this blessing through the family of Abraham, through Christ, out to the nations is in fact true, then you and I ought to be a people who pray big, bold prayers for God to do big, bold things in taking the gospel from one place to another. If this is what God is up to, then here's the invitation to you from Jesus himself to pray big prayers that God would do what he has already said that he intends to do. So do you often give yourself to praying for the advancement of the gospel? 
Do you pray regularly for missionaries? Do you pray for people to hear the gospel who have not heard it before? If you don't, what better time to start than now? Christmas right around the corner. God is the one who sent Jesus to us, the ultimate missionary. He then sends his disciples out. And so if you don't already regularly pray for the gospel to advance for missionaries, let me invite you. There's no better time to begin. There should be, and hopefully by next Sunday, we'll have some prayer pamphlets uh, to go along with the Lottie Moon Christmas offering that will help you with this. And so that would be a great tool for you. So one thing that we should all be doing is praying that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. The second thing, this is something that most of us should be doing. Giving. Nearly everybody in this room ought to be finding ways to give to make this happen. You see, this isn't a burden that Jesus has placed on the church. This is a privilege. The gospel will go forth to the ends of the world. That's a promise. The invitation is you, church, have the opportunity to be involved in seeing that happen. Jesus' people have always made great sacrifices to give generously so that this might happen. We're to value seeing this promise fulfilled so much that we find ourselves happy to sacrifice our wants to free up resources to give. We say, you know what's more valuable than a bigger house or a bigger TV or another coffee or a drink at a restaurant or another gift for under the Christmas tree? What's more valuable than all of those things is the beautiful gospel going forth to the ends of the world. So let me invite you to consider, in this season when the world tells us, be consumeristic, be materialistic, gather possessions, let's rebel. What might we give up so that we might give to something that won't be rotten in a year? What might you sacrifice that you might give generously so that people might take the gospel to the ends of the world, that people might be saved, that the gospel would go forth, that Jesus' kingdom would be established where it's not. Might we be generous givers? The last thing, certainly in a room this size, several of you, I'm sure, ought to seriously consider, is actually going. We don't issue calls like this often in in church. But I do know that Jesus, from the very beginning, expected his people to go. Now, Now, many of his disciples stayed put in Jerusalem, and God did wonderful, marvelous things with them there. Certainly not everyone goes, not even most people go. Most people stay put, work hard, labor well, make sacrifices to fund and support others going. But there are some, there are a blessed some, who see this task as something God is leading them into. And so if you've not yet considered whether that might be you, let me encourage you to consider it. It is often the people who think, this can't be me, that God calls to pack up and go. 
if we really believe that the blessing through Abraham's family is for the nations, if we really believe that there is forgiveness in the name of Jesus and nowhere else, if we really believe that Jesus is one day coming back, then we ought to be a people who send and go. And so church, let me encourage you. Pray hard that God would send people. Pray that God would bless them with seeing much fruit. Pray that people who don't hear the gospel would hear it. Consider what you might be able to go without so that you might give extra. These things cost as anything worthwhile does. And consider, might God be raising you up to go to the ends of the earth? If, if you think that might be you, um, or if you're, then I would love to talk with you after. Um, this is something that we as a church would love to do, is to see people go to the ends of the earth. And so pray big prayers, give generously, and consider. Might God be sending you? Pray with me. Lord, you are the one and only God. And you are a big God. You're not confined to any borders, but you rule and you reign over all of creation. And we thank you that in your ruling and in your reigning, you've sent your Son. We thank you that you've forgiven us of our sins, that you've given us your very Spirit. And so we pray that we might respond in the only way that makes sense, that we would respond in obedience to you, that we would care deeply about seeing the gospel spread, about seeing churches planted, about seeing people who don't know you come to know you. And so I pray even in our church, that you would raise up men and women who might take this beautiful treasure to the ends of the earth and share it that others might come to know you. So have your way with us as a church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.